there was a little girl that showed up and they said, oh, we need a stringer racket. I said, okay, I'll string her racket. And I'm like, okay, they're telling me she's like number one in the world right now. <laughs> uh, juniors. I said, really? This little... I said, okay, maybe I should just take a picture with her. So I said, can we just take a picture with you? You know, we didn't know that. That was Martina Hingis. <laughs> At a very young age. Hello, and welcome again to Tennis Pal Chronicles, the podcast to feed your passion for all things tennis. I'm your host, Philip Kim, also known as the Tennis Pro at the historic Langham Huntington in sunny Pasadena, California. We have a very special guest today. If you have been in and around tennis tournaments for the past 20 years, then Julian Lee is no stranger to you. Julian is a professional stringer that has been on staff at 30 Grand Slam tournaments and put in thousands of hours stringing rackets for a majority of tennis pros that have played at the Grand Slam level. He is also the owner of Apex Racket Works, his new tennis store in Laverne, California, where he is an asset to the Southern California tennis scene. Many in Southern California know Julian for his store in Arcadia, Rackets Rackets, which opened in the 90s and is now run by his brother John. In this interview, Julian shares some great stories about sharing an iPad with Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal's surprising attitude on tennis stringing, taking a picture with a young, unknown Martina Hingis, and shares a lot of behind-the-scenes tournament knowledge from a professional stringer perspective. First, here's our co-host, Valerie, with a message from our sponsor, Tennis Pal. Let's give a big shout-out to our sponsor, Tennis Pal. Go download their tennis app today and find people to play tennis with in your area. You can visit TennisPal.com. It's available on all platforms, whether you use uh, Apple or Android devices. Thanks, Valerie. We joined Julian in his store, Apex Racket Works, on a sunny Saturday afternoon. As the interview is taking place at his busy store, we are often interrupted by customers who have no idea that they are talking to one of the greatest stringing experts in the tennis world. Hey, how's it going? Not even a month. Am I too strong or too good or what? <laughs> it in the middle. Julian is a humble and quiet worker who seems hesitant to share his accolades, especially considering his life surrounded by tennis royalty. Besides being a world-class stringer, he is very much a player, fan, and coach at heart who has a passion for the game that has given him so much. Let's welcome Julian Lee. So, Julian, hi, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks, Phil. Thank you so much for making time for us. We really appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about how you got your start in tennis. Where did it all begin? How young were you? So I was about 17, and a couple of my buddies wanted to play tennis, so they asked me if I want to play. It was during, I remember it was during Thanksgiving holiday, and um, I said, I don't even know how to play. I don't even have a racket. So they said, yeah, just come out. We have a wooden racket, Jack Kramer, you can use. I said, all right, sure. You know, I played, and I just fell in love with the game from day one. And I remember the first two years, I basically played every day. That's that's all I did. And uh, I just stuck with it. I kept playing and playing. And the more I got into it, uh, the more I wanted to know about my equipment. And that basically kind of became the fascination of, uh, you know, stringing my own racket. Um, I would go to pro shops and just stand there for days and just looking at the guys in the shop stringing rackets and, you know, ask some stupid questions here and there. And they were nice enough to, you know, just help me out and kind of give me an idea of what to do. 
And then, uh, you know, I decided to start to string my own racket because I just wanted to experiment so much. So I, I think I've, my first machine was like about $115 and mounted on the corner of a table. I had that set up in the garage. And I just remember swing, stringing my racket in the garage and I was just sweating and sweating and my hands were just getting all torn up. It was just a, just a disaster. But, you know, it was a way for me to start. It was a necessary start for me to actually get into um, something that I was very passionate about, mm. uh, something I just really want to dig into deeper. Um, you know, so with these different colors of strings, I, was, I think that was like the first thing I wanted to do. Then, then later on with the different textures and then different tensions I was playing around with and, you know, play at the local park. And um, a couple of guys realized I was stringing my own racket, so they would just hand me their rackets. And I would just ride my bike to the park, pick up some rackets, take it back to my garage, my hot steaming garage, <laughs> string them up, and then, you know, bring them back the next day or so. And, you know, those guys give me like 10 bucks, 15 bucks. That was, to me, that was like, all right, you know, I did something that I was happy with and these guys are okay with it. So, uh, you know, just kept doing that. And, yeah. uh, you know. So instead of a paper route, you started tennis stringing. That, that was one of my first jobs. Wow. <laughs> Well, let's take it back a little further. 17 is actually kind of late for someone to start in tennis. I mean, we're glad that you started at 17. Previous to that, had you had any experience at all in tennis? Did you know anything about tennis? Well, I remember my cousins, uh, they were visiting and they played tennis. So, of course, you know, I was about 10 years old, 10, 11. And, you know, of course, I oh, that's, that looks like fun. You know, but I, I still remember the, one of the main reasons I want to play tennis because I love the popping sound, how the balls comes off the strings. And I always want to emulate that. It's just, if I could just keep up a rally, that would be really cool and just have that constant popping sound going back and forth. That was my major goal. I didn't care about winning or losing. I just want to be able to keep the ball consistently in a rally and make that popping noise every, every once in a while for that. Wow. And that, that's actually a great lesson for someone to hit in the middle of the strings, right? And not to shank, to, because that's the only way you're going to get that nice, clean, exactly. popping sound. That's great. So uh, when you were growing up, did you watch tennis on television? Was, because back then, maybe it was a little bit more prevalent than it is now. Yeah, um, but I would watch tennis, and I still remember the McEnroe-Borg epic match at Wimbledon. Ah. And I remember watching that and I remember falling asleep because uh. I was just really not interested. I, I think I'm more of a, you know, I want to participate in the game at that time. I didn't appreciate the, you know, the great athlete these guys were watching TV, you know, from, from watching behind the TV. One of the things that I talk about in the decline of tennis today is that there is no national tennis that was on television. My wife would watch these uh, cartoons and then end up watching tennis because she was just stuck watching TV and it was just always on television back then, whereas now you really have to search for it to find it. So I just wondered if you had been exposed to tennis in any way besides that and then at 17 started to play. It was just basically my friends, you know, like to play. When I really got into it, then I would watch almost every match on TV. I would VHS, I know I'm dating myself, <laughs> uh, record every match, and then I would go the fast rewind, fast rewind. I want to see the guys emulate my favorite players and how they hit their ground strokes and how they hit their serves. And, you know, I, I would try to emulate as best as I can without hurting myself because these guys are professional athletes and I'm just a beginner. Right. 
And 17 is kind of late to start in a way, too. Absolutely. It is late, but, you know, I just enjoy playing. I knew I'm not going to be a pro. So the next best thing is uh, when I got a little bit older, um, I got myself certified as an instructor. So I went through the whole, um, you know, workshop, uh, took the test, the teaching test, the written test, uh, the performance test, uh, did all that, and then uh, just got myself deeper into the game. So I strung some rackets. I was still an amateur stringer, uh, but now I know about the game a little bit more as far as the teaching perspective. And then I got hired by a club at um, Industry Hills Tennis Center. Sure. Yeah, so I was there. I taught there for a while. Um, was was Pam Austin there at that time? Yeah, Pam was my boss. Yeah, so worked with her many years. Yeah, I worked with her at the Riviera for a little while until she retired there. Oh, okay. I didn't know. I, I knew she got the job at Riviera. I didn't know she retired. So that's great. So you talked about sitting with stringers and watching when you first were passionate about it. Where was that? Where did you go? Were there a lot of tennis stores during that time? or There was a small shop in Eagle Rock. That's where I grew up. Um, I think Ray's Tennis or High Tower Tennis, that was called. I would just go in there, and I knew the owner, and they would. Uh, they were nice for me to hang out in the shop. And I would go to the, in the Glendale Galleria. There was an old sporting goods store called Go Sport, and uh, they had stringers in there too. So I would just stand there and just watch these guys. And, uh, you know, like I said, just see what they're doing and, uh, you know, and, and still read as much as I could. There was not much written material or obviously video like we have in YouTube right now. Right. Um, so it was a lot of uh, trial and error, mostly error. But, you know, you <laughs> learn from my, I learned from my mistakes and just try not to do the same thing. I still remember stringing my first racket. It took me like about an hour and 45 minutes to do it. And when I was all finished... I looked at it, there was a misweave on it, and I was like, okay, we got to do that one again. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Was there anyone who kind of took you under their wing in the early days? Yeah, I mean, right after college, I had a choice to either start my own business or um, go back to school and get my master's. So I decided just, you know, I'm going to start the business with my brother. And uh, we'll see what happens. If it doesn't work out, I'll just go back to school. But, you know, knock on wood, and, you know, we worked out well. Um, I was very lucky to meet some of the guys who strung at uh, French Open. So he, I, was, I would say he was actually my Babolat rep at the time. And he would come in. I'd say, hey, can you kind of give me some technique? I mean, I knew how to string a racket generally. But I just want to know the specifics, the exceptions, and I think that's the biggest difference, and also the details of uh, how to prepare a racket. Um, so he was very nice to help me with that. Steve Huber, that's his name. Say, say that again, Steve? Steve Huber. Steve Huber, great. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Steve. And then um, there was an opportunity to string at the U.S. Open. There was an opening, and I said... Uh, yeah, put my name in if if it works out, you know. So that was back in 1993. And then about a week later, I get a phone call, and they said, hey, you're in. I was That was like one of the most happiest time in my life. That's incredible. I, I remember getting that call and just running up and down in my shop because I was so, so excited. Wow. And at the same time, so scared, like, okay, now <laughs> I got the job. 
Now <laughs> you got to deliver. <laughs> now here's the pressure. Now <laughs> I'm like, okay, don't mess this one up. So uh, you know, I got my uh, work, my handbook from uh, the USRSA. Make sure I knew all the patterns on all these rackets because I don't know. It's my first time, and you know, being at the U.S. Open, this is just very intimidating. You know, I sh- um, I remember flying over and uh, showing up, and I didn't I didn't know where the stringing room is at. I'm looking around, I'm, I'm walking through these tennis cafe. I figure, okay, maybe the string room is here, it's there. The, the grounds at the U.S. Open is just so huge. Huge. And there's very little signage when um, the tournament is about to start because nothing has happened yet. Right. So uh, I was lucky enough, I, ran, I saw somebody I recognized from the tennis magazine, and I knew he was a stringer. Oh, no, I love this. This is really exciting to me to imagine you just going to your very first U.S. Open. Yeah, because I've never never done any tournaments before. I went in there. The room is huge. We have about 16 stringers from all over the place. And you're the new guy. I'm one of the new guys. And uh, I was way in the back in the corner. I was just like, just don't mess this one up. Just just be slow and uh, do it properly. And uh, so that, that, that helped. That, you know, that I didn't make any mistakes. And I was um, trying to help out all the veteran stringers and that that was really easy for me to do because you know like cutting out their strings or something uh just prepping their rackets ready for them and uh, so they they in return kind of took me under their wings and uh show me some more techniques and how to speed things up what i need to work on placements of the clamps why we do this why we don't do this um so I, I was like uh, just a little very dry sponge, just trying to absorb everything I could, you know, see and and uh, ask uh, ask more stupid questions. <laughs> and uh, you know, these guys were very uh, nice to me, and uh, and so that led to the following year they asked me back. So which is a definite um, show of confidence here. Yeah, that's a good confirmation. Yeah. Do you remember the first racket that you were able to string or the order? Like, I, I really don't remember um, that. It's just at, at a tournament, there's just so many things happening. Um, you just have to write it down. Yeah. Because uh, once you get on the plane flying back, it's like um, you go into amnesia. You just forget everything. Wow. Uh, it's, it's pretty intense. Uh, the hours are very long. We're, we're there from anywhere from 7 in the morning till 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, just nonstop stringing, and uh, it was, it was definitely an experience, very exhausting experience uh, for someone who's never done a tournament. So we didn't, I didn't know what to expect. Um, so, you know, flying there is three-hour time change. And you get off the plane, and you, you drop, you show up at the site, drop your bag, and get going. Yeah. You know, get your machine ready, tuned up. And get going, and that—that's, uh, and then you're just stringing till like one o'clock, two o'clock, and there's really no downtime because, mm. you know, we're paying for our own hotel, we're paying for our own airfare, um, so you're, we're lucky to just break even, at that time. But you know, it was a very good learning experience. These are the necessary step it took, to maybe to get me where I am today. Sure. I mean, it gives you street credibility, too. I mean, to be able to say you strung, very few people can say that they strung at a slam. 
Yeah, I mean, right now, I uh, just finished Australian Open. That was my 30th Grand Slam. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> wow. It, you know, there's a lot of small tournaments that build up to this. Little challengers, little 250 events. I'm going to say two. I wouldn't say little. I mean, they're, they're tournaments mm. and experiences. And then, um, you know, the Olympics, the last two Olympics, that was just awesome. That was you know, that was one of my dad's passionate thing. He loves sports, and uh, for me to be a part of the Olympic Games, uh, he was, you know, my dad was very proud of that. Well, let's talk about your parents, because for you to develop a passion for tennis at 17, they're probably thinking you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, right? <laughs> so how did they feel about you starting a tennis business? My dad actually was uh, very nice about it. My dad just, um, he, he actually helped us with some money to kind of get the business off the ground. And um, I think he had the same idea, just to give it a shot and see how far this goes. And uh, luckily, it, it uh, hasn't stopped for uh, 27 years now, 28 years now. So it's, uh, it's been a blessing. We've been very lucky. Uh, there were a couple of times we thought we were just going to close, and that's it, you know, back to school. But um, uh, we're very fortunate. And, and being at the right place at the right time, meeting the right people, uh, networking, that was uh, very helpful to uh, go to different tournaments and uh, seeing the same faces, meeting some of the uh, industry company representatives. They they know who you are, and sometimes they need a stringer or they need some expert opinion. Then they give you a call and say, "Hey, can you fly down here? Can you come out? We have a player testing a racket. Uh, can you come out to Vegas? Can you go to Copenhagen? Can you go to Monte Carlo?" Um, so that was, uh, you know, a lot of traveling. That's great. What yeah, a dream. So, and just show up and, you know, at these foreign countries yeah. and, you know, and working with top pros. And that was definitely a real treat. You know, these guys are probably looking at me. This is guy. Here's, here's this guy. You know, he, he, he's fine-tuning my racket. He's fine-tuning my strings. You know, and I'm inside, I'm just like going all giddy. <laughs> <laughs> and these guys are looking at me like, you know, I'm trying to be professional about it. And, right. And not stare and smile the whole time, just there to do my job. And uh, Yeah. Let's talk about the first time you met someone kind of famous in the tennis world. I mean, obviously you're passionate about tennis and you go to the U.S. Open. Who, do you remember uh, any experiences? I, I still remember uh, in the stringing room, I was walking out and... Uh, Steffi Graf comes walking in. She has, she was beautiful. She yeah. had this nice blue dress. I still remember walking in. Wow. Well, she's not in her tennis outfit, obviously, but she was just really gorgeous walking in. I've never seen anybody like that before. And, <laughs> and sitting there, and our our stringing room is adjacent to the players' eating eating area, the lounge area. And I remember staring over, and there's Jim Courier sitting right there. I can't believe it's Jim Courier. <laughs> You know, he's sitting right, you know, maybe 10 to 15 feet away from me. I was like, you know, you just try not to try not to stare, but you're constantly just like looking over your shoulder like, who else is in this room? Who else is in this room? <laughs> are there, what are the rules about like taking pictures or, you know, because you're so close and you have so much access? Yeah. Um, back then, I think the rules were a little bit relaxed, but um, so we would approach some of the nicer pros. We 
also have some unwritten rules about when to ask for a picture, when for an autograph. Um, you know, usually after they win, that's a good time. After they practice, that's a good time. If they lose, do not ask. Before a match, definitely do not ask. So we would try to follow those rules. I think it's pretty logical. Uh, but nowadays, uh, as long as we're inside the player's area, it's definitely a no-no. No pictures, no autographs, um, because that's kind of the player's sanctuary. And when they're out in the public, then if it's okay, then we would say, you know, ask for a picture or something. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, so what happened to your tennis game and your tennis passion? Let's go back to when you were really excited about learning tennis and improving your game. How would you say that that transitioned or, you know, your, I'm interested to find out about your personal game. My game basically mostly was just self-taught. Um, but then again, I made a lot of mistakes and, uh, you know, end up hurting myself with these unorthodox swings. Uh, <laughs> right, you know, my, right. I remember my hurting my back, hurting my <laughs> wrist, hurting my elbow, right. just because I, my body's not built for that. It's not strong enough to handle all that stress. Right. Uh, but learning how to teach the game, um, that really helped clean up my technique mm -hmm. a little bit. Because you had to study it. I had to study, and I have to be able to recognize when someone is doing um, you know, the strokes, uh, wrong strokes or something, uh, corrections. So, I mean, after that, I just kept playing, playing a lot. Played uh, league tennis for a while, 4.5, I remember. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that was an adventure, but th that just took so much time. Uh, obviously, you know, I had a job. I had a, the shop was open seven days a week, so I had to take some time off. Uh, you know, luckily my brother was in the shop, so he could run the shop while I was gone playing league matches, uh, but then after a couple seasons of that, I just, the, the business starts to grow at the shop, so there's uh, just very little time um, playing league tennis, and plus uh, traveling start to stacking up, because uh, networking with my fellow stringers, they go back home, they have a tournament, hey, Julian, can you come out and help us? at this tournament. I said, yeah, sure, I'll come out. I'll do anything, you know. So that went to, like, the Lipton tournament, um, Indianapolis. Um, so just knowing these, my friends were very nice to ask me to come and help them out. And, um, you know, with the tournaments, putting us in hotels, sometimes we'll stay at my friend's house, you know, just show up. And uh, that was definitely uh, always a lot of great memories doing that. Mm -hmm. What what a what a photo album you must have. <laughs> <laughs> I try, but uh, you know, mostly some sometimes with some players, but um, uh, but a lot of times it's everybody gets the wrong idea that it's a very um, glamorous life, you know, going to these different places. But it's it's a lot of work. Uh, we're very long hours. There is no set hours. Uh, we just have to get the job done. Um, I I took a picture when I was in Rio, and everybody thought, I just to show my friends, you know, this is my typical dinner. It was a it was a cup of noodle, a bag of <laughs> chips, and some water. That was my dinner right there. And uh, and probably just squeezing it in in between rackets. I was just squeezing it in. There's times where you know I I had breakfast that morning, and then I had breakfast the next day. Because yeah. I didn't have time to eat 
lunch or dinner and uh, I was working till three o'clock in the morning my hands started swelling up from all the stringing and I was so worried about that because I had to get back to the hotel and try to sleep for about three hours and then come back on site by seven o'clock and trying to make sure that my hand I could make a fist so I could grab onto the string I was just totally panicking I went back to the hotel took a couple of aspirins dunked my hands in some ice water as long as I could and just kind of get the swelling down um, so that was uh, you know now now you live and learn and you know you, there's definitely uh, things you prepare for when you go to these tournaments so uh, you know comfortable shoes um, everything from comfortable shoes to the right height adjustment for the machine right right so you're not constantly leaning, leaning over your or back leaning, right or, you know arching your back backwards uh, so anti-fatigue mats <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways, what you're describing is a very harsh kind of picture of being a stringer. Would you recommend it to anyone? Because it sounds like it's a lot, a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but it's a great experience. You know, I got to see the world. I'm very fortunate to do that. Some of the companies fly you out there, put you in a nice hotel, sometimes in a nice suite. But, you know, my room, my suite becomes a, a warehouse of boxes and machines and so it's it's not that glamorous uh, yes the locations are obviously very glamorous but the work condition it, it could be challenging at times but uh, you know after 25 years of doing this it, you kind of know what to expect and you prepare yourself properly and the trip becomes fun yeah, let's talk about the 25 years because maybe one of the reasons that you're so successful is you really came up in the heyday of tennis. Tennis was booming here in the United States. There were so many people playing. From what I understand, people were even fighting to get on the court and to reserve courts, whereas maybe it's a little bit different now. How have you seen the landscape change, uh, both as a stringer, but also, you know, the enjoyment of that time? Well, yeah, growing up, we, you know, we had a lot of good uh, American players. We had Agassi, Sampras, of course, Jim Courier, yeah. Um, so it was a lot of good... Michael uh, Chang. Michael Chang, of course, can't forget Michael Chang. Strung his racket this last tournament won at UCLA. Uh-huh. Yeah, so he was very nice, his brother Carl, uh, but... There's just a lot of American tennis going on, and I think that was definitely a positive spin for the U.S. Um, youngsters to watch tennis and watch and learn, and I was a big fan. Um, so, you know, being in the room, stringing their racket, that was definitely, like, a big thrill. Like, I can't believe my racket is out there. <laughs> <laughs> Your handiwork is in their hands. Yeah, but, you know, it's we. bottom line, we just prepare the racket and... The racket doesn't hit itself, so these guys have to do the magic on their own. So the landscape has changed. I mean, growing up, like, we see a lot of American stars, but now definitely it's a lot of European stars. Obviously, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, um, Stan Wawrinka. So. But it's more of an international game. I think because of that, uh, viewership maybe have declined a little bit. A lot of the U.S. tennis fans don't know who is who, who's playing which is kind of unfortunate because it's a great game. Uh, it's a very exciting game. But you never know. There's always some up-and-coming uh, U.S. players. Um, Andy Roddick, I remember. He was uh, huge. I remember he coming in. And he was just a junior at the time. Mm. He was just looking around and looking at his, his the racket he was using on the wall. And 
we're just little talks about that. I just got to get hit with Andy Roddick at the Newport Beach Tennis Center. Okay. They had the Oracle Challenger, and they had a couple of VIP people that were allowed to go onto the court and hit with Roddick and Marty Fish. Blake was there also. Okay. So it was just the the dream, you know, and they were just making fun of us the whole time. (laughs) So that was even funner, just to be made fun of by Andy Roddick, you know. But yeah, you saw that transition. You also saw the transition of technology being a stringer. Like you said, you started playing with the wood racket. And right. to see that transition through the years and, and the game, how it's played now, is so different probably from when you first started. Yeah, all the everything, the equipment has definitely changed. I mean, from going from wood racket to some, you know, aluminum brackets and then some composite with fiberglass, mostly fiberglass and a little bit of graphite. Very soft, and uh, you know, back in the days, those rackets, you're getting the power from the weight of the racket and basically how hard you can swing that racket. Um, for nowadays, you know, you have rackets that's under nine ounces, which is unheard of and super powerful. They have, you know, space age technology with, uh, you know, graphite, high density graphite, um, carbon. Carbon. Uh, the game is the material. Tennis racket material has changed so much. Uh, And along that, um, what really changed the most in the last, I would say, 20 years definitely is the strings. The string technology have definitely picked up with the introduction of uh, synthetic multi-filament strings, uh, polyester strings. Uh, That really changed the games. You can bend the balls way more than what you can do before. Um, before it's just a lot of power with natural gut, um, but you don't you didn't get as much spin as you could with the polyester strings these days. So that's definitely changed the games. Um, For the good, I think the game has to evolve. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. Um, I think if you if you if it didn't change, it just becomes stagnant, and uh, I think it's a little more exciting because um, you know you could bend you could spin the ball a lot more than you did before. You can make shots that you didn't think you could make before. Yeah. You could definitely serve that ball a lot harder. <laughs> you know, the, the stiffness of today's racket versus wooden rackets is almost 50% much stiffer. Mm-hmm. Um, the power, the game became easier for consumer to, to play with. Mm. Um, but at the same time, um, it can hurt them if they're not using the proper equipment. Wouldn't you say also that the game became faster? People have to be a lot more physically fit. Like you just came back from the Australian Open. I'd love to hear more about that. But watching the women play at the Australian Open, I felt like they were just banging that ball. They were really, I felt like the speed of the ball is a lot faster, the serves, everything. The the WATA, the level is just getting higher and higher. Yeah. Growing up, I mean, I was reading articles about the Swedish, you know, like Mas Vilander and all those guys. They would just practice that. They would just practice tennis all day long. They would go for their little run, but they didn't spend that much time in the gym as far as working out, getting fitter. And then I think Yvonne Lindell during that time kind of changed the game. Obviously, Martina uh, definitely changed the game. Uh, and then later on with uh, Yvonne Lindell getting fitter, hitting the ball faster, running faster, stronger. Yeah, uh, definitely changed the face of the game. And now players are spending just as much time in the gym as they are out on the court. Right. There's, they have their personal physios that trains them, get them stronger. 
they have masseuse yes. that follows them. Right. Um, so they these guys spend a lot of time. I mean, a lot of times we we're fortunate to be behind the scene, and we can see what's going on. These guys don't get off the court and just put on their shirts and go home. Have they, a beer. No, <laughs> that doesn't work. You know, these guys are off the court. They're in ice bath. They have their arms taped out with uh, taped with ice packs. They're getting massages right. before and after their uh, practice, right. physical or, therapy, and, and matches. Right. And then if they have time, then they'll go do press. <laughs> then maybe they'll go home like three hours later after the match. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So, do you feel like because of that level change, being at the club level here in your store, you're dealing with people who are playing tennis? Do you feel like the gap to learn tennis has changed? It's a lot harder, maybe? And then the gap between, you know, club players and people who are college and then higher, that that level maybe has changed? I think, no, I think actually the gap between learning how to play tennis has, to me, become definitely a lot easier. Ah. Just because, you know, there's so much videos on on the Internet to see instructional videos and... uh, Whereas, you know, when I was just record them off the TV, if I remember to record. So there's so many videos out there um, about equipment, about nutrition. Hmm. You know, we didn't grow up with any of that stuff. Right, you know, right. Obviously, how to hit a, how to hit a serve. I mean, there's, there's videos on serve, backhand, forehand, volleys, whatever you want to see. It's, it's out there. That's and there's, true. And there's hundreds of videos out there, <laughs> even hundreds of videos on how to string a tennis racket. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I think of a podcast we did with Coach Paulo Hexel. He talked about growing up in Brazil and as a nine-year-old kid playing with a full-size adult racket because that's all they had. There weren't kid rackets. There weren't, um, you know, red balls and different levels of play for them. So I guess in that way, yeah, it's a lot easier to learn. Then you have leagues now. Then you have college players. Obviously, you have professional players. Um, The equipment has changed. It's really changed the game. I think it it's definitely builds more excitement because back in the days, the, the the games you're watching is more about consistency, not so much about power, consistency of movement. And now it's you have to have everything. You've got to, like Novak Djokovic, this guy is built like a gazelle <laughs> out there. He's very slim, and he just moves so fast, and his body, you know, contorts like a... Gumby out there, so it's 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 very impressive. It, it, you know, a lot of the tennis fans they don't until you actually sit by courtside, you you don't appreciate the speed and the finesse that these guys have. It's true. On TV, the angle of the camera shoots it in a different way, so it actually looks kind of slow. But when you're on courtside, it's just amazing how fast these guys can move and and how they're able to swing so hard, hit the ball so hard, and st- manage to keep that ball in the court. And, and consistently, yeah. Consistently. Five, six-shot rallies. Exactly. Yeah, that, that is amazing. Tell us about your personal experiences traveling to these slams, or, or what, what are some of the best personal experiences you've had that tennis has given you? I think it's... Um, just to be able to go to these different uh, events and work with you know really top guys and be able to ask them questions and uh, get some more knowledge in not how to do something but along with why do we do it that way so with uh, even just other stringers some uh, technical reps from the manufacturers 
I would ask him, you know, very simple things. We ask him, like, why is it not tied over here and not over here? And, um, and pre-stretching, non-pre-stretching, just terms like that. Um, we try to get to very detailed uh, answers. Um, tennis, everything from type of knots to type of tennis balls and why do you use that? Um, so I was very fortunate to be able to work with some of the guys who actually have the answers um, that people sometimes just, you know, overlook. Um, so uh, with me, it's, it's, it's all about the detail. Um, we interview, I interview a lot of stringers. They send in their resumes and ask if we could, you know, be a part of your next tournament or something. And, um, you know, I would just... Look at, look at their resume, and uh, you know, I have no problem them stringing a perfect racket. I, I don't think that's an issue. You know, the 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 problem starts to happen when you're doing over thirty rackets, and how's the consistency, the detail? Are you, are you clean? Do you get along with your fellow stringers? That's another big big element that yeah. people overlook. Yeah, the personality. Personality. I know a lot of great stringers that uh, definitely better than me, um, but they're not asked back because they just don't get along. Um, unfortunately, yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you got to be able to make sure that uh, um, conduct yourself in a very professional manner. Yeah. Um, Let, let's talk about some of the memories of. Meeting the stars, you have a picture of Novak Djokovic, and you have a picture of Roger Federer. Maybe some stories of uh, you know running into these people and uh, some of the really great moments for you. Well, well running into jo Novak Djokovic, he was uh, actually staying at our same hotel, and <laughs> he was just coming back after picking up his laundry, and he was taking some pictures with some fans in the in the lobby so I I figure hey you know this is a great opportunity and by the time I got up to him he he wasn't about to take any more pictures he was done he just wants to go to his room but fortunately I knew his hitting partner <laughs> and I looked at his hitting partner and said hey it's me and he looked at me then he then turned to Novak he goes hey Novak can you take a picture with Julian over here and then I was lucky you know it's just one of those things, being, you know, at the right place at the right time. Um, and just other times I was working, um, I was traveling at the slams with Yonix. I was, I became um, Team Yonix Stringer. And so I would work with a lot of the Yonix players. They would come to my hotel room or I would find them in the courts and so I started to develop a little relationship with them where they would see me at every tournament. They would they look for me, and they would just hand me their rackets, and they, you know, everything will be done next morning. And, you know, then after that, it was easy to ask for a picture or an autograph with them. And, you know, knowing that it's a free service, and, uh, you know, they're happy with my work, so thank God. And, um, you know, I just give them the racket, and... Hey, is it okay to get a picture, or you know, can you sign this for my friend? He's a big fan of yours. And, uh, so, who are some of those players that you, that were with Team Yonix that you got to? Uh, well, Leighton Hewitt is is obviously you know big name for Yonix. Uh, 
uh, Martina Hingis. She's one of the still one of the nicest pros I ever met. Tell, tell us the story of when when you met her. Uh, actually, she, I was we we're in Australia, and um, I was in charge of distribution in the hotel room, and she came in with her husband at the time, and she came in. She was just like staring at the whole room with all these goodies, Yonex, you know, products. And, uh, you know, she says, I, I feel like I'm a kid in a candy store. And I said, yeah, well, you could pretty much pick whatever you need. You know, we have a list, you know, we can't give everything away. Right. But she would just, you know, I'll take one of this, I'll take one of this. I go, yep, you know, here you go, here you go. And she was really happy about it. Wow, you're, you're everybody's best friend there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, you know, I was outside and um, uh, at the Players' Lounge, and she comes walking by. You know, and she looks at me, and she, she obviously saw me, and she goes, hey, you want something to drink? I'm like, why is she asking me something to drink? I don't, you know, I'm just a stringer. And I said, oh, yeah, sure, you know, lemonade, is that okay? And she, <laughs> she runs back in, and she brings out two bottles, one regular lemonade, one pink lemonade. Aww. I'm like, I, I said, anyone, anyone, it's, it's fine. And she was just very nice to me, uh, giving me, you know, um, my lemonade. Oh, that's great. I was great. Like really happy with that. <laughs> that's really nice. Yeah. yeah. I feel like those are the moments that really make the job worthwhile, right? Where yeah. you meet someone that you really idolize and look and, up to. And, and to add to that, this is the funniest story. Uh, back in 90, 1995, uh, I was doing the French Open. We're at the lobby at the Concours Lafayette in Paris. And we're just stringing there. And we're stringing all the Bablat sponsor players at the time. And there was a little girl that showed up, and they said, oh, we need a stringer racket. I said, okay, I'll string her racket. And I'm like, okay. They're telling me she's like number one in the world right now. <laughs> uh, juniors. I said, really? This little girl? I said, okay, maybe I should just take a picture with her. So I said, can we just take a picture with you? You know, we didn't know that. That was Martina Hingis <laughs> at a very young age, and I still haven't been able to show her that same picture I have with her. I didn't know who she was. I just knew she was really good. So I better just maybe, you know, maybe she'll be good someday. <laughs> good call on that one. <laughs> well, speaking of the Swiss, you have Roger Federer over there, and I'm a huge Federer fan. So um, how did that happen? Roger was actually really nice. He, I was working with uh, Priority One at the time, and... Um, Priority One is a stringing company? Yeah, it's a string service that travel with the, the players, and uh, Roger is one of their clientele. And um, we're just sitting there passing out our rackets to our clients because I was working with Priority One. And here comes Roger. And I was like, oh, my God, what, what is he? He's coming towards our table. So the next thing I know, he drops his bag on our table, and he sits right across from us. And I was just like, okay, don't do anything stupid and don't say anything <laughs> stupid. I was just kind of like minding my own business. And next thing I know, he's talking to my friend Ron, obviously. He knows Ron very well. Then he's talking to me. I said, okay, I better say something back to him. I don't want to act, you know, like a stranger here. <laughs> and he was just, he's just a great guy um, on and off the court. He is what you see he is on TV, on and off. And he's talking about movies, we're laughing about, you know, his all travels. He's talking about this movie. He was flying back and forth to uh, the Middle East. So he saw a lot of movies on the flight. And he said this movie, Lincoln, 
that was pretty good. I was like, Lincoln, what's that? I mean, I watched a lot of movies. I didn't know what he's talking about. I go, wait a minute, Lincoln. <laughs> about President oh, yeah. Lincoln. Pre- President Lincoln. Oh, that's what he was talking about. And, you know, we had a little laugh about that and talking about the Avengers movie. It was, you know, it was just like talking to one of your friends. He, he, made, he made you feel very comfortable. He's never, you know, above you. A couple of days later, same thing happens, you know. <laughs> I'm over there sitting there and just um, minding my own business with my friend Ron from Priority One, and here comes Roger again. And I'm on my iPad, and next thing you know, Roger says, hey, can I borrow your iPad? Are you, what are you going to say, no to Roger? <laughs> I said, sure, what do you need, you know. He goes, can you type up this, this address? I go, all right. So it was in a foreign language. I didn't know what it was. So I typed it up, and he goes. He asked me, he goes, you know what that is? I go, no, I have no idea what this is. It's, it was a Swiss website, and he wanted to know who the new pope was going to be. Uh-huh. And so that was kind of like, oh, okay, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. I, I've heard that his family is Catholic, but I've never heard it mentioned in press or you know, talked about in any way. Yeah, well, I, I don't know what religion he is. Um, I just know, you know, he's a super nice guy. And, uh, you know, he, he would come into the stringing room when we're working, when we're doing uh, Cincinnati. He always comes in and greets all the stringers. And he always introduced himself. We know who he is, but he still <laughs> says, Hi, I'm Roger. Nice to meet you, which is, uh, I think, really cool. You know? That he doesn't assume. Yeah, he doesn't assume that. And um, Wow, that's great. Uh, what about Rafael Nadal? Have you ever had a chance to meet him? Not, not so much. He does have this thing where he likes to come into the stringing room. So he kind of checks his strings? No, he just wants to hang out in the stringing room for like 15 minutes. Kind of maybe his, one of his rituals he's got to do. Huh. He'll come in. I remember him coming in in uh, Rio when we are doing the Olympics. He would sit in the room and just you know, watch TV with us. And we just, you know, we didn't bother him. And he would stare at the TV for about 15 minutes, and he would look around the room, then he would walk out. We were nice enough to have Chavi Segura. He's uh, one of the Davis Cup stringers for Spain when we're doing Indian Wells. And he's obviously very good friends with Rafa. So I I asked Chavi if it's possible if I could get a picture with uh, Rafa when he walks in next time. And he says, yeah, sure, I'll ask him. So, you know, I was lucky to get a picture with Rafa. That's the only time I was able to get that close with Rafa. (laughs) Still, that's great. Wow. Um, I want to go back to your Yannick story. I thought it was so interesting that you said you kind of set up in your room and then people would come to you. So they wouldn't go to the stringing area like they, this is like a separate service? Yeah, this is a private service with the sponsor players for Yannick's. So... Of course, there's the uh, on-site stringers. They're sponsored by, you know, other competitors. Um, but we only took care of Yonex players. And if they want us to do it or want us to string the racket, we would take care of it for them. Um, so it's a free service. So they're saving a lot of hundreds of dollars. Uh, but I, also at the same time, it's a very good service that we're able to obviously string the rackets very consistently and have it ready no matter what time they dropped it off, it'll be ready the next day on site at 8 o'clock. 
So they were really happy about that. And f so for you, is this in addition to all the other stringing that you're doing? Yes. This was part of the stringing service that I was involved with, along with different tournaments, working with different companies such as Head, uh, Yonex, and also still work with Priority One at Cincinnati, and whatever other tournaments they might call me up for just to help out. So... I've got to imagine that being as good as you are, and now that everybody kind of knows you, that maybe uh, that maybe professional players want you specifically to string their racket, or have there been even like juniors or, or people who come to you and you're the only person that they want to go to? Uh, that's really nice, Phil. But uh, it does no, no. We really don't want to do that just because there's just so many rackets to to be done. For example. There's no way for me to handle all the players. It's nice that they might request for me, but um, it really comes. We we're sharing the room with anywhere from two other stringers to twenty other stringers. So um, it really comes down to how long I'm going to be at a tournament. That will dictate uh, what type of players I'll, I should be getting. Very unlikely a string for Rafa Nadal anytime soon, just because I don't stay that long at a tournament. Uh, they want someone that's going to be toward the end, so they'll probably assign it to somebody else. Right, because hopefully he's going to go deep into the tournament and he's going to need... Yeah. And he wants that same person to be stringing his racket throughout the whole time, is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Rafa is actually not so picky about his stringing. He, in fact, that, that's hard to believe, <laughs> knowing how picky he is. Yeah, that's actually that's one thing that's very surprising. He's always 55 pounds, and I think in Australia he was doing 55 and a half but he would just drop off his racket. He would actually personally come in. A lot of time the coaches would drop it off. And he, no sticker, no bags. He just wants it in the box and he'll just pick them up later. Um, not like others, some other players that will request a lot of specific details on their rackets, where the stencil is gonna sit, upside down, backwards, just a lot of um, detailed information that they want so we have to make sure that we follow these from the time they start to string the racket uh, or string the racket tonight, string the rackets in the morning, check the schedule. So we have to look at what time they're playing and maybe get the rackets three hours ahead of time. So that's just, you know, we try to put that into our schedule along with our schedule rackets to yeah. do, our morning rackets to do. And, of course, when the matches start, we have on-court rackets that are going to be fl flying in. Players that pop the string, players that want to change tension. So those we have to be ready for those. So, you know, we have to have a very good crew to make sure that the, we, everybody could cover their own and also help each other. Mm. Are, there, uh, are there any players on the pro circuit that have a personal stringer that they only use that doesn't go through the racket stringing room? Yeah, I mean, Priority One definitely has their uh, share of players, top players, you know, Federer, Djokovic, uh, Jack Sock, um, Wawrinka, John Isner, I think that's, you know, that's just to name a few. Um, there's other services that's out there that travels with the guys. They'll travel for Chilich. Um, uh, Sharapova has her own stringer. Uh, Ostapenko has her own stringer. So, uh, but I think that the game has really changed as far as the stringing service because the on-site stringers now are definitely 
the best of the best out there. I mean, yes, there are other private string services out there. Uh, I would say maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the private stringers definitely had an advantage because they were so consistent. They knew the players really well, and they could lock in on the tension very quickly. Um, whereas the tour stringers, the guys would show up at these different tournaments around the world, it's a different face every time. Maybe you'll get one or two guys that you recognize. But, uh, but nowadays, when you go to these different tournaments, especially at the majors, it's pretty much the same face. And these guys are definitely uh, really good. And th do. does that speak to the technology also? Has the technology of stringing increased and, and helped for that consistency? Yeah, I think with the, you know, it comes down to the machine. The machines are definitely do, doing a lot more than um, what we used to work with. I mean, starting out, we, you know, little hand crank machines. But now these days are all fully computerized. They have a six-point mounts on them. They have a pre-stretch built in. So we would pre-stretch, hand pre-stretch before. Now it's very consistent with the machine. You could set up to 5, 10, 15, 20% pre-stretch on these machines. Um, the tension is very accurate because it's fully computerized. Um, the pulling speed is set consistently. So it's a lot of variables in stringing. But this, having a good machine that you trust, definitely cuts down on the variables and basically presents a very consistent product. So if a player wants to change half a kilo or a pound, they would really know the difference. And basically what we do as tennis racket stringers is to give the player peace of mind when they're out there and just worry about the game. Don't worry about the equipment because that's all covered and it's exactly what you asked for. How do the machine manufacturers get picked for tournaments? Like, are they, are they, you didn't see that, but Julian just made a money sign for the podcast. But uh, is there one specific manufacturer that is always at these tournaments or how does that work? I think different manufacturers, they definitely want to put their foot down on um, these tournaments just to show credibility, um, obviously presence and um, promotions. So, you know, working with Yonix at the Australian Open, we do a lot of promotion in the stringing room. There's cameras, newspaper, photographers. Uh, they do a really good job as far as promoting Yonix as a brand and promoting us stringers also at the same time. Uh, working at Indian Wells with, with Head, uh, we have another great group there too. Uh, we do definitely do our media um, with some of the um, internet uh, videos. Um, columns will be maybe interviews such as this with uh, magazines, uh, newspapers, uh, photographers, they always come in and we're happy to promote the brand because they're the one that got us there and uh, we owe it to them to uh, present uh, a good showing for uh, Head or Yonex. But they're not actually Head or Yonex machines, are they? They're they're probably like an OEM of some manufacturer or? Yeah, most of them are. No, but Yonex's machine is actually made by Toizuki uh, manufacturer. But there are other machines now, like you said, some OEM. Uh, but each manufacturer will take that OEM machine and kind of tweak it a little bit, maybe change the clamps, maybe change uh, the pulling tension, tension head a little bit just to kind of fine tune it a little bit just so 
they can identify as one of their own machines. Mm. So do you ever get to a tournament and you you see the machines that are there and you're like, oh, God, not these. <laughs> <laughs> There's some machines out there that's not one of my favorite. But, uh, yeah, but for the most part, it's, it's just kind of like, give me about an hour or a couple of rackets on this and I'll just fit right in. Um, obviously, we have personal preferences just like anything else. Um, our ideal machine is, but you know, all I want to make sure is this thing is working. This thing is delivering a consistent product for me, and um, you know, we all work together and one one big happy family, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I'm learning so much from you about kind of the behind the scenes of tennis, and so excited to continue talking with Julian. Uh, you just got back from the Australian Open. You talked about being there. How does it differ compared to a fan that's watching the matches, seeing who wins the next round, knowing you know who might be a champion? How does that differ when you're in the stringing room? What's the experience for you guys besides the work? I mean, yeah, well, it's kind of amazing because you you know five minutes a racket was in front of you, and the next five minutes you see it out on the court, someone swinging your racket. And you kind of cringe every time they miss a shot or something. You kind of take it personally. But, um, you know, we're, we're staring at, we do see some matches, but not as much as everybody think. Um, is there a TV on in the room all the time? There is a TV on, but we're not staring at the TV. We're staring, we're looking down. So we just basically listen to. But usually we have a giant screen, a couple of screens in there, and it just shows the score because we need to know who's playing next, whose racket is, needs to get ready. Uh, if there's an on-court racket that needs to be strung right now, we're constantly looking at the score to time it just right so we could bring it out during the changeover. If we're just going and we don't think we're going to make the changeover, then just go ahead and slow down a little bit, um, get the stenciler ready, get the bag ready, uh, make sure the ball kit or we're running it out. Uh, we want to make sure we're timing it just properly so we're not wasting our time. And and obviously, if the match is over, just slow down. The match is over. You don't need to keep going that fast. Um, so hopefully your player just won. Or uh, Sometimes you run out there and it's the middle of the third set tiebreak and you just can't give the player the racket. You're just standing there helplessly. Um, just cross your finger. Hopefully this guy wins. <laughs> just because there isn't a break in order for the racket to run out to Exactly. Them. You know, if you're at 5-6 uh, and they started, you know, it goes 6-6 six, six and then it goes right into the tiebreak. There's nothing else you can do. And they have requested a, a racket right. to come for the tiebreak, but it just... Yeah, we can't step on the court uh, until the changeover. Uh, so... Interesting. And there's hundreds of... Well, hundreds. There's, there's so many matches going on all at the same time, so there's so many kind of yeah. deadlines you're keeping track of. Yes, um, but, you know, we're doing, we're doing about 550 rackets a day. I think those are the, the highest at any Grand Slam tournament. Back-to-back uh, -back days, we, had, we did 550 rackets. So at the Australian Open, that's yes. the, mo the most ever. We strung the most rackets at any tournament, any Grand Slam. And at the end of the tournament, we ended up with 5,818 rackets. Incredible. So that was, that was a lot of rackets. But, you know, it could be very confusing, but... Uh, as long as, you know, as far as, obviously, the volume of the racket, but if you just focus on the players that's assigned to you and you look at the scoreboard, you know who's playing who, you know 
my player is winning or my player just lost, unfortunately. Uh, so that kind of, it's, it's not as stressful when you look at it that way. But if you're looking at, if you stop and you stare at the room, there's just nothing but rackets and there's players, there's stringers just everywhere and they're just doing their own thing. So when you say my player, does that mean that you get assigned a player at the beginning of the tournament or how does that work? Yeah, we get uh, assigned players. Um, sometimes it could be a hitting partner. It could be, you know, Dominic team, for example. So who were the people you were assigned to this year? This year, it's, um, let's see, I had Stevie Johnson, I have Francis Tiafo, I have Caroline Pliskova, I had uh, Karen Kachinoff, Dominic Team was one of them. So it was your fault that Tiafo lost against Nadal. Actually, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, actually, no, I was back home already, so someone else took the blame for that one. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we just prepare the racket. We don't play the racket. Sorry, I cut you off, but that just <laughs> made me laugh. Uh, so, wow, that's a lot of really big name rackets that you're stringing. Those are just the names. Well, those are you know the popular names, the recognizable but, yeah, ones. Yeah, recognizable. But there's, you know, there's probably another two dozen guys that we string for, and you know who knows, you know, back a long time ago, back in Indianapolis, there was a guy named Federer playing qualies, you know, like, okay, all right, we'll string this guy up. You know, never know what he's going to mount to be. What a weird name, Federer, <laughs> you're thinking. <laughs> and what about all the juniors and uh, mixed doubles, and how does all that work? Uh, the juniors will usually start the second week. So um, after first and second round of the tournament, which is our busiest time, it starts to die down a little bit. The doubles will start kicking in. And then uh, the juniors' qualies will start kicking in. So our work level still sustains, uh, pretty, still pretty busy. So if you're stringing for Stevie Johnson and he plays singles and doubles, you're, you're same racket, same player. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if he's playing singles or doubles. Yeah, it's just whatever their coaches bring in or he brings in. And uh, if they need to make any changes on the tension... Um, so we'll just adjust accordingly. Do people string very differently for doubles? No, actually they don't string that much, but they will make a change if it's a day, daytime match versus a nighttime match. Also, if they're playing indoor, if the roof is closed, they might change tension, or they found out the roof was going to stay open and we're not getting any rain they might uh, change the tension accordingly. I read an interview that you did where you talked about how, I think in singles, they averaged five to seven rackets per match, but in doubles, it was only one or two rackets per match. Yeah, doubles, they really don't ask for too many rackets, um, maybe one or two, because the game is so fast. Uh, the guys string much lower in doubles, most of the guys. Um, in singles, that's where they really focus their game on. These guys will come in anywhere from 7 to 12 rackets per match because they're going to go through about 1.5 rackets per set. So in a five-set match at a grand slam, you're looking at least 10 rackets right there, plus rackets for practice. So um, And on-court emergencies, so it, it could really add up. Wow, that is a lot of work. I'm interested to know if the people in the stringing pool in the room, is there like a betting pool at all? Like do they tell each other, I think Novak Djokovic is going to win? Or, you know, is there any kind of like camaraderie talking about who's going to win, who's going to lose? Well, of course you want to you root for your own players, but uh, we don't do any betting. 
That's illegal. <laughs> well, just like gentlemanly bets, you know, like you owe somebody dinner or something. <laughs> Maybe we'll do something like that, but uh, we're just happy to make sure the racket is done on time and it's out there and ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be fun. I'm sure there's lots of underground stuff that's happening that no one else knows about. And I, I mean, know- we, we would look at the draw. We would kind of make our own picks in here and there and uh, you know usually we'll have a little pool of five dollars and at the end of the day who predicted correctly and they get the pot of oh there it is there that was that was you know that was kind of fun so uh, but you know (laughs) toward the end of the tournament there's not much to do so it's always best at the beginning of the tournament we'll do something like that why is it that you don't stay for the second week just because there's not as many rackets to do it's not necessary for me to be there Obviously, it cost the company money to put me up over there, and uh, and now I have a my own shop, and so you know it's it's closed while I'm gone. So I have to make sure I come back as soon as I can to, you know, open the doors and turn on the lights. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your shop because we definitely want everyone who listens to our podcast to know about Apex Racket Works, and it's very cool that you started this store here in Laverne. 1991, you started Rackets Rackets, which to me is a legend in this area. I think pretty much everyone I know who plays tennis knows about Rackets Rackets. Can you tell us a little bit about the transition between Racket Rackets and Apex? I, I think people were probably a little bit surprised by that. Yeah, well, after, well, it's been since 1991, we opened uh, with my brother together. Uh, so we just, you know, been running the shop for over 25 years together. And, uh, you know, I just thought there was an opportunity just a little bit east of us in Laverne because, unfortunately, a lot of, or fortunately, a lot of the uh, chain stores, sporting goods store has closed down. So it was kind of a a void here. So I figure, you know, it's, I think it's a good spot. I was looking for months and months trying to find a, a good location, but I didn't, at the same time, I didn't want to cannibalize our other shops business in Arcadia. So I was fortunate to find Laverne at a fairly nice size shop that I could afford. And so, uh, you know, we planted a seed here and uh, very thankful with uh, a lot of clientels and word of mouth. Uh, people come to me and uh, come to us and give us their business, you know, just help them out, whether they're just starting out or they're full on player uh, on the tour. Uh, we do a lot of customization. That's a whole other thing that we do here. Um, so stringing advice, tension advice, um, racket customization, um, even teaching. They want to find out how to maybe I'll go out there and hit with them, you know, for an hour. So just to give them a little tips here and there, because, you know, I know, I mean, I'm still a big fan and I really appreciate the people that helped me when I was coming up. And I just want to give back to, you know, a junior, a senior who has nobody to play with. I'll come out here with you. You know, I'll, you know, I'll make it fun. And that's very rewarding to me as a person. And just trying to, you know, establish some roots in the, in the area here. So, you know, we're, we're in a small, small city in Laverne, but we're a stone throw from uh, Glendora, Pomona, Claremont, Rancho Cucamonga, just like servicing people and guide them in the right way and uh, get rid of a lot of myths or uh, misunderstanding of uh, products 
and strokes sometimes, and so it's it's you know it, it makes it fun, it makes it worthwhile for me to come here, and you know sometimes unfortunately I have to close and go on the tour, but just to make sure that um, you know I'm in the know, and uh, I'm current with all the information with string racket technology, what the players are using, and the trend, you know, what the trend is going to. You know, back then we were just using synthetic gut. Then there was a lot of natural gut for players that could afford it. And now there's a polyester, there was a polyester boom. And then now there's more fine tuning of uh, hybrids with uh, natural gut and polyester strings. Gut on the main, gut on the cross. Julian, you just told me this really great story about Martina at Indian Wells. Can you repeat that for me? Yeah, well, we're, you know, string over at Indian Wells with Head, and Martina Hingis comes walking in, and she kept asking, uh, she's asking me if I, she could, I could match her rackets if she wants to try some different weights, so which I did, and then, you know, she would take the racket, and the next day she would come back and, you know, took some lead off and changed the lead positioning on the racket, she goes, I like this better. Can you give me another racket exactly like this? I said, yeah, sure. Give me your racket. I'll do it. And then, you know, every time she comes in, she's, you know, she wants to pay for it. And she wants to pay me for it. I said, no, that's okay. You know, it's part of the service we do here. Um, so it's not necessary for you to pay me. And, uh, you know, so as this went on for three or four days, and she was telling me, well, I only have three rackets, and one racket is cracked, so I'm going to be sending one in right after practice, right before my match, can you get that ready? I said, yeah, no problem, we'll get that ready for you. And during my match, I'm probably going to send another one in. I said, we'll be ready, you know, don't worry, just go and play your match. She's, you know, made it to the finals at Indian Wells playing uh, doubles. So, and it was, uh, you know, she sent the racket in, we're about to finish the racket, and we looked at the scoreboard, she won. Like, yay, great, you know. <laughs> And then we said, yeah, all right, you know, slow down that racket. You don't need to finish it that fast anymore. And uh, and then about a couple hours later, she comes walking in the door. You know, I'm saying, okay, you're know, here to pick up your racket. You know, so, and he goes, no, no, I, I came to pay you. I'm like, no, for what? He goes, oh, no, I just want to, for helping me. You know, I won. I want to celebrate with you. I'm like, it's okay. It's just part of the service. He goes, you helped me so much on the turn. I said, no, no, it's, a, it's fine. It's fine. You don't need to do this. And so, you know, she, she pulls out a couple hundred dollar bills. And she goes, this is for you. I said, no, no, we cannot take this thing. I mean, it's very nice of you to offer. We cannot take this. And she says, well, if you don't want to take the money, can you maybe buy the rest of the guys, the stringers in here, uh, dinner or, you know, on me? I said, and, know, and all like, the other stringers are looking at you, I'm sure. I mean, they're staring at me like, you better take the money. So, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I took the money and, uh, and, and I, we do all went out for a really nice Korean barbecue about a week later after the tournament. So, uh, thanks to thanks Martina. To, yeah, thanks to Martina Hengis. Wow, that's a great story. That's really wonderful. So, in, in a way, she was really grateful and relieved because she knew she counted on that racket. One of her rackets was cracked. And you could tell how important your job was in that story. Yeah, you know, we try to treat everybody the same. Um, you know, it's just one of those things where it just happened. So, uh, you know, we just make, make the best of it and just make sure it's we get her racket off her mind. 
so she could just focus on her game. But at the same time, uh, you you probably were watching the game, and when she won, there's a little bit of pride there, right? I mean, yeah. it's the racket you used to run. Yeah, we're happy. I mean, she's it's it's not hard to uh, you know cheer for a nice person, a nice player. Uh, so you know, we're just ecstatic that she won. Uh, but, you know, we have to treat her opponents the same way. You know, we have to also give them equal amount of you know, great service. Sure, because somebody else strung that racket, too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. it's just, you know, we just, you have your personal favorites, and, uh, you know, and you want someone to win. Yeah. So, you know, that, that keeps us awake when we're, <laughs> we're in the stringy room. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have so many stories. I wish I could hear them all. I think it's what an incredible career and, and life you've had, so many incredible experiences. And now you have this incredible shop here in Laverne where you're giving away a lot of that uh, experience and knowledge and customizing rackets. Tell us a little bit about what you do here at Apex, and, uh, and we'd love to get the word out to you. Well, at Apex, the, my, this is kind of my, my dream shop. You know, I want to be able to carry products that I feel are good products. I, you know, I want to do the homework for a lot of our consumers, our customers, to, you know, just weed out a lot of the, you know, bad rackets or bad idea rackets. Um, just carry some solid equipment at a everyday low price that's very competitive, especially uh, on the internet. Uh, we offer great service anywhere from customizing your racket the type of string you want to use, uh, make little fine changes on your grip, for example, wrapping your grip the proper way. A lot of the lefty players out there are wrapping their rackets for a right-hander, so we would definitely make that correction here. And they need to go further. They're a tournament player. We're a junior tournament player. They want to have multiple frames that are identical. We offer that service, too. We could customize the racket, so all the... Three main factors are covered, such as your swing weight of the racket, the weight of the racket, the balance of the racket. Um, just so going back to working with the pros, when they break a string or they want to change a racket, they could just go in their bag, pull out another one. It's identical what they just played with. So eases their mind, focus on the game. And we just want to make this game fun for everybody. We want to be able to offer our services to like I said, anybody who's just starting out to uh, high school tennis, club tennis, uh, a league player, college player, even all the way to the professional level. We have the capability, we have the knowledge, 27 years of you know, working on the tour, uh, advice, experiences. We could definitely help you with your game. That's so great. And uh, obviously, with all the stories that you shared, you guys uh, know what you're doing. Uh, what about people who are outside of the area? A lot of our listeners are actually all over the world. So w- how can they connect with you? Where would they go? What advice? Um, how, how could they um, benefit from your store? Okay, they, they can always email me. The email for Apex Racket Works is apextennis at gmail.com. Um, you could just always send me an email, or you could uh, find us on Facebook under Apex Racket Works. We also have another page with Instagram. You can kind of see a little bit behind the scene at the tour events that we do. So I, I think that's cool. You could always drop us a line if you have any questions, advice, curious about some things that you're always wondering about. And if we can, 
we'll definitely uh, answer for Thank you. Thank you so much, Julian. Yes, we're going to have all of your links in our show notes so they can uh, make sure to like your Facebook page and your Instagram page and hopefully we'll find some new people who connect with you here and just really appreciate your time and all of the wonderful stories and thank you so much for helping all of our tennis players in Azusa and now at the Langham so it's really great to have you as the Thanks resource. for having me Phil this has been a fine aspect of my career. <laughs> it really is I think it's awesome and and it's so hard to run retail as we were talking about and so we really want to support you and what you're doing here at the local level so really appreciate that. Thank you, Phil. So that's our show for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate Julian Lee and giving us his time. You can join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover fantastic bonus content on our blog. A big shout out to our sponsor, Tennis Pal. Go download their tennis app today and find people to play with in your area. Visit tennispal.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to receive notifications on future episodes. And if you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at aces at lovesatmatch.net. May all your serves be aces. Till next time.